Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are looking at our economics forecast for 2022. It's always interesting the importance people place on forecasting, or let's call it what it is, guessing what the future may have in store. There are some fantastic signposts in this podcast that are going to help you and your family set your stall up. Hope you enjoy the show. See you on the other side. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurentiel. Thanks for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter. No specs today, glass-free, but ultimately, we're still looking for your outlook. What a segue that was. Well, that's diabolical. I would expect no less. This is actually a second complete consecutive year, week in, week out, of delivering the Money and Investing Show. How about that for consistency? Likewise, well done, buddy. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. This, Who would have thought uh, two years down the track? Here we are with a uh, multi-thousand dollar studio from what started in a boardroom with a couple of microphones. That's right. Nice microphones, nice sound, and hopefully some equally uh, powerful information. So let's dive straight into it, the economic outlook 2022. Really important crossroad that we're currently at. We've just seen fears of Omicron rise to the surface. We've still got inflationary pressures, particularly of that in the US. I guess today we want to get your insight, AB, on something we like to call the dogleg outlook, something that could either go <laughs> either way. We're going to run through a couple of scenarios. Um, so with no further ado, let's just jump in. Scenario one, the golden scenario. The golden scenario, hey? Yes, this is interesting. And the wonderful thing um, about economics and economic force Forecasting is a great joke, but if you took every economist on the planet and put them end to end, you'd never reach a conclusion. Okay, so <laughs> that's how we get there a little bit more robustly with this. So, yeah, scenario one, the golden scenario, I guess our base case, our optimistic case, um, really tackles three or four of the, the key areas uh, that have weighed heavily on markets through 2021, and in fact, in some instances, the previous year too. Obviously, one of them is COVID and the implications, impact, and effects of it. Um, you know, as you rightly say, we've had a new derivative of this, and I think we're going to end up with plenty more new derivatives of this into the new year, and and beyond that um, of Omicron in this case. Uh, and the question is, what impact will that have? Uh, and if it's a diminishing impact over time, as as vaccination rates continue to increase not just here in Australia, and this is something that's, I, I think, really important to understand from a su supply chain perspective and, and a shipping perspective, but higher vaccination rates in some of the third world countries where stuff is made. You think a place like Bangladesh, where a lot of clothing is made, for example, you know, when vaccination rates eventually get up to a, you know, a really robust and solid level, that kind of fixes the supply chain to an extent, uh, which is a massive thing. You know, if we have further lockdowns as a consequence of government policy on the back of you know, no derivatives of, of of COVID, that places enormous uncertainty and enormous stress on the economy. We've got um, a scenario also where, you know, governments have spent an enormous amount of money over the last couple of years helping their economies uh, ride out uh, the difficulties. And, and I think those cupboards are pretty bare now in terms of the ability for more uh, government stimulus. It's about time the economy kick-fired uh, on its own steam. So, you know, COVID is a very big variable. Assuming that's less of a factor going forward, uh, I think that's going to provide a really, really supportive case for us in a, in a lot of areas. I guess we're at that crossroad now. We've kind of run up the hill really hard. People have gotten vaccinated and we've done all the hard yards, but mm. then there's a variant which has kind of put us back a touch. Yeah. I think if we have to deal with these constant variants coming up um, from a political and economic standpoint of view, you can't keep locking down people in their houses, right? You can't do that, no. And, uh, you know, the, there'll be boosters. And look, again, it's a very divisive subject, whether you should be jabbed or not. Let's park that to the side. One of the things, having a higher vaccination 
rate and less people with um, you know the, the the bad symptoms of COVID is the impact it has on supply chains. So one of the biggest bugbears, I suppose, for manufacturing in particular, but not just manufacturing, construction, plenty of us too, um, through 2021 were the constraints that we saw on the supply chain. You know, and just to put a ribbon around how painful that was, we even had the, uh, the accident and traffic jam in the Suez Canal, just to add further misery to that. Why are there supply chain constraints? Well, you know, a lot of ports have been able to offload containers or, or, or materials that are on vessels because those ports simply aren't operating at full capacity due to health scares and concerns in that sort of area. Uh, and so, you know, if you're a car manufacturer, you take uh, an example of this would be, say, Skoda uh, in Europe. Now, Skoda back in the day, uh, Czechoslovakian car brand, and uh, I think they're owned by Volkswagen uh, Group now. So they've gone from being an Eastern European non-appealing pretty average looking vehicle, not, not an attractive vehicle to anyone's taste, I suppose, to be a pretty cool car, pretty good car, well-made and so on. There are, I think, nearly 900,000 nearly completed Skodas sitting there that are waiting on microchips to be a completed vehicle to then be able to sell. So you've had a scenario where someone wanting to buy a car has got a wait list of you know, maybe a year, as we've seen in Australia, to get a new car. As those components arrive to the manufacturer, all of a sudden, it's not like there's a wait time. There's a 900,000 cars there ready to go that just need a chip put in them and they're ready to go. There's a potential where you almost get an oversupply or, or you certainly get a, that imbalance of supply and demand re-established to equilibrium, if not more, the other way as those cars come to market, which starts to reduce inflationary pressures, which is one of the big negatives that we've seen on our economy. Um, arguably the same thing in construction. Um, you know, I finished a development last year and had I been doing it this year, it would have probably taken an additional six months and cost 40% more. You can't get glass, you can't get materials to put in a waffle slab. Structural timber uh, is 30 or 40% more expensive. Um, as, as things even out and, and the economy opens up more fully, uh, those gaps in the supply chain get refilled and, and you would hope, <laughs> how often do you see prices drop? Very rarely, but you'd hope that new supply starts to ease the inflationary pressures that we've seen there and, and smooths the supply chain through. That will be a really good positive, certainly. I guess it all it all delves into that really important figure as we talk of inflation, which mm. affects so many other parts of our economic health. Mm. Um, Scenario number one, all things good, is that supply chain disruptions subside, COVID goes away, and then we see inflationary pressures come down. Yeah. Is that going to require an interest rate rise, in your opinion? Yes and no. We said it was a dogleg forecast. Let's, let's explore <laughs> a couple of other things within in the inflationary side. If we think about food, for example, um, we've talked about manufacturing for cars where you get the chip and the car's finished. With food cycles, it can take a little bit longer. And so if you, for example, look at beef or, 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 or lamb, we had a drought in Australia a couple of years ago, horrific as it was, we're very in tune with that. You know, a lot of clients that are farmers and other clients that live off the land, so to speak. And at the time, you know, if you're in the city, you didn't really care. I know that sounds a really callous and hard thing to say, and we, we were quite vocal at that in that space at the time to, to try and get some assistance out for our uh, people in the bush. The reality is a lot of farmers had to destock their herds. So if you're a farmer and you've got limited grass and certainly limited water and you've got a cow and a calf, 
which one are you going to sell? Because you can only keep one because you're going to order for one. So if you sell the calf, that's great, but you've got no beef coming to market now to sell, which is as a result, higher prices in beef. Or if you got rid of the cow, you've got no breeding stock, so you can't breed more calves to then increase the herd size. So there's a restocking phase that we've gone through. And that's why we're seeing that pinch in, in uh, prices for meats in particular uh, in Australia at the moment. So all those things, when they settle down, they take time to settle down. Um, it's interesting when we talk of inflation because inflation isn't higher prices. And if I put my economist hat on for a moment and try not to put everyone to sleep when I do, inflation isn't about higher prices. What inflation is measuring is the rate of change in prices. So we may have to contend with petrol that's $2 a litre. We may have to contend with lamb cutlets that are six bucks each. We may have to contend with beef at premium prices and so on. But if the rate of increase in those prices slows down, inflation effectively is under control and there is no need for a rate hike to bring that into line. Which is good for us, right? Mm. Because we get some certainty in prices. Absolutely. So, you know, and it is a bit of a misnomer. It's commonly misunderstood that inflation isn't about high prices. It's the rate of change in those prices. And we've certainly gone through uh, a phase where that inflationary rate has been relatively high by historical standards. If that slows down, it's unlikely the RBA will buckle uh, to, to increase interest rates. If there's no sign of that abating, they're going to be obligated to do so. Uh, and that then brings with it um, you know, quite a scenario of, of challenges for sure. Um, you know, so inflation is a big one. Wage rises, for example, what does that then mean? Well, people are demanding more money because the cost of living is increased. But if you give wage increases, the price of your product has to increase. And if the price of your product has to increase, that causes inflation. So you end up in a vicious uh, circle. So you need some wage increase. It has to be. We're not advocating there doesn't need to be that, but it needs to be within limits. And there have been several industries uh, that have been quite vocal, for example, that, that have asked for pay rises, you know, eight, nine percent pay rises, because the company or the sector they work for has been making an absolute killing during the pandemic, and they feel they're entitled to their fair share of the profit, so to speak. Um, that's not an appropriate pay rise. And it's not for me to play God on that. It just isn't. If you've got inflationary pressures, Wages need to keep up with at least inflation. And then if you add more value through your role, then that's where your pay rise should be above and beyond what inflation is. If you're not adding any more value, it's hard to see where that comes from. And look, that'll stick in the crawl for a lot of people listening. And I am talking right now uh, with my economics hat on, not not as a, as a human being. Uh, you know, there's been more industrial action as people are beating the drum. That is a risk for markets in there. Uh, and we're seeing the unions uh, sort of try and turn up the heat. And again, you know, unions represent 14% of the work Force, yet they seem to have a disproportionate say when it comes to pay negotiations. It's only 14% of the workforce. It's interesting times. So yeah. inflation is a tricky one. That's, that is a variable. But I, I, I think we're going to see a slowdown in price rises on the back of oil prices have come down a little bit more recently, which is a huge one, which should bring transport costs down and so on. And I think that might just ease the pressure that's there. There's definitely pressure that certainly is in the property space, but that might just ease things a little bit. Well, diving deeper into property, as you mentioned, there may be Where's your outlook sit for 2022? Look, if there's no rate rise, I think we're going to see a steady property market. I think we are going to see some significant slowdown uh, in the rate of growth in property for a couple of reasons. Uh, I think APRA at some point will step in. Uh, APRA being the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, their job is to uh, you know, provide advice to the banks um, in terms of responsible lending, for example. Um, and I think 
if we see you know interest rate rise, there are still going to be from from the RBA no inflationary pressure. I think you're going to see APRA as they weigh up the impact of higher prices, investors versus first time buyers or you know, natural growth within the property market, a requirement for example higher levels of deposit or more stringent serviceability requirements, etc. We're seeing interest rates move up anyway, so I do think you're going to see a little bit of the steam move out of property. You know, a, a lot of pundits are calling the migration uh, and the opening up of our borders for skilled migrants to come in, the surge the property market can expect. I don't know that we're going to see that opening up of the borders for that. You know, we've got 750,000 people out of the workforce that need to get back in, and maybe they need to be tapped out first before you then open the door for, you know, skilled migrants coming in. So that sort of um, cavalry coming over the hill, the property market doesn't need any cavalry coming over the hill. It's been doing very nicely. It needs to probably stabilise and consolidate at these prices because, you know, from an investor perspective, really, if you're investing in property right now, as I am, as you are, as everybody else is, um, You've got to look at yield and rents have not been able to increase alongside the value jump in property, making them very overvalued on a a yield basis. Um, And there's no capacity for rents to increase to the level that they need to because there's no wage growth and there's not enough spare cash in households' pockets right now uh, to better justify that. So I do think those factors combined are likely to result in a, a more stable property market. You're gonna have migration factors people moving out of Victoria, for example, to the different states uh, for maybe a better quality of life and a lack of dictatorship um, uh, is still going to be a supporting factor, but I do think you're going to see a bit of the heat come out of it and some normalisation. Great. So really, scenario one is quite positive. Inflation's managed, COVID goes away, supply chain's all good, and then the property market slows down, which is not necessarily yeah. a bad thing. And really- a slowing property market is a good thing because it, it's been overheating and it just needs some time to, to cool down a little bit. Totally. So the million dollar question is if mm. you are an investor, particularly mm. that the stock market, what are you looking at doing? Mm. Look, I think with that scenario that I've just outlined, the Goldilocks scenario, I think uh, you know you want to be long equities. Uh, you're going to see a run in equity markets in just the same way. Um, you'll see money being deployed uh, from households. One of the things that we've seen is despite all of this, or maybe because of all of this uncertainty, the savings rate out there has actually gone through the roof. Lots of people have saved a lot more during the pandemic, maybe no overseas trip, uh, spending more time at home because they've been forced to, so to speak, it's, it's, it's resulted in people saving. Also, maybe a little less certainty about the future has prompted people to want to be a bit more careful with their money too. So there's a large amount in savings that's been accumulated through this pandemic period. Um, and I think that money ultimately will burn a hole in people's pocket, not necessarily in terms of you know, buying another plasma screen or refurbishing the house. That's already been done. Look at the share price at Harvey Norman, Temple and Webster to see all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think that money will find a home in the investment markets. And if interest rates aren't moving higher um, and they stay at 0.1% as a, as, a, as a base rate, that needs to go into somewhere. Property is not that affordable. So the stock market is the next best place for it. Uh, for a lot of investors that want to get into property that can't afford it, they see the stock market is where they have to go. And we've already seen that with the volume of new investors joining markets. I think we'll continue crazy. to see that. Uh, I think that trend will continue. Totally. Well, looking at the other side of the coin then, AB, <laughs> and not so much Goldilocks scenario, if we take effectively what you just outlined and then do the exact opposite, mm. that's a rather diabolical situation for the economy, right? It's it's certainly far more challenging and is a far less certain uh outlook. And I think as always, and we've really espoused this view pretty much any time we get a microphone in our hand, and that is that markets don't like uncertainty. So if something comes in that brings with it a level of uncertainty, and we talked in the Goldilocks scenario uh, about 
COVID. Um, an uncertain event might be, let's say there's a, a, a really nasty derivative that then starts to set things back and places go into lockdown or supply chain gets disrupted. That is a major factor. But it may not be COVID. It could be geopolitical. So, you know, we've talked previously about China uh, and its uh, conduct, for example, relating to Taiwan. And if that kicks off uh, and China invades Taiwan for a moment, you, you've got the potential we've got a really serious war. It's not like a... It's hard to say this without sort of denigrating, particularly for those people that have served and, and particularly for those people who have lost lives. You know, if you look at the sort of war in the, the Gulf War, uh, the war in Iraq or Afghanistan, they're a different type of war. Um, you know, something with Taiwan is, is, is a significantly major challenge by, by several orders. You know, it's a very, very serious uh, event. And that sort of thing, were it to happen or an escalation in tension in that space, is just the sort of thing that can cause uncertainty that affects shipping because the South China Sea is a major shipping channel sure. um, that affects supply chains because Taiwan is you know, the world's primary manufacturer for DRAM. DRAM, of course, being computer chips, the memory for a computer, which goes in your car and well, goes into just about everything right now. So in that instance, if we did see tensions politically or mm. COVID ratchet up or mm. inflationary pressure start to get out of, hand, out of hand, excuse me, the property market running way too hot, where do you then go as an investor? Mm. Look, that, that does present its own um, you know, fairly tricky map to navigate. You know, if, the, if there is you know, inflationary pressure, uh, you know, the other side of the coin to that that we've talked about, supply chains continue to stay disrupted. So there's a, an outbid to get what is fairly limited supply. Um, you've got a real problem. If you if you look at, for example, a micro sector, you know, construction in China, uh, we've seen with Evergrande and, and, and Fantasia and a few others that have gone under there. We've also seen, you know, a couple of construction companies, one in Queensland, quite a big player, go under. Um, the margins in jobs because of inflation is actually quite thin. And when you have thin margin business. You know, you think about how much it costs to get a trade. It's expensive. You think, oh, what a ripoff. A lot of that cost is materials and a lot of other stuff too. If you've got subcontractors that end up not getting paid because you know, a primary developer goes under, for example, that, that margin is pretty thin all the way through and, and, and that knock-on effect, that consequence to them is, is, is pretty severe. That kind of uncertainty, you know, a big developer falling over, a slowdown in their property market and economic uncertainty, or, um, you know, supply chains not getting unraveled and inflation staying high are all, all pretty bad news. If we have a property market that continues to run away, the RBA isn't going to raise interest rates because property is running away. They're going to look at it and wonder what the, they should do to keep some economic stability. But it's going to become a very hard corner to fight when you've got an economy that's really two speed, probably running away and the rest of it really struggling. So yeah, that, that's a big challenge. And if we see a rate hike, um, because it's unexpected, we've been promised by Governor Philip Lowe, Dr. Lowe, that there'll be no rate rise until 2024 if we get one before. Even though markets are sort of semi-factoring that in now, you look in the bond market, that's still going to be a shock. Markets don't like shocks, and you can expect serious volatility on the back of that. Well, it was only recently we saw Fed Chairman in the US, Jerome Powell, come out and say, oh, look, you know, Inflation is actually not transitory. It is a real risk. And mm. we saw subsequently the market react yep. accordingly to that. If we see the same in the Australia, it's, it's going to be the same effect. In that instance, AB, of that scenario, are you putting on a hard hat? Are you still investing? Are you just being more defensive? What are you actually doing? I think you do have to reach for the hard hat. Um, you know, in that scenario, we do see an unexpected rate rise. And look, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I'd say you're probably going to see a rate rise next year um, out of these two scenarios. The earlier that rate rise happens, the smaller it will be. 
the later you leave it, the more significant it will need to be, purely and simply because if you're leaving it later and inflation is growing, you know, if, if you pull out a little weed and it's just a little seedling, you just pluck it out, it's really easy. But if you've got a paddock full of weeds, it's pretty hard work to get it out. You've got to take more aggressive measures. Enter Monsanto, stage left. Um, you know, the reality is with interest rates, if inflation continues to run riot, which it is in the US right now, that's for sure. And, and we may well continue to see here in Australia if supply chains are disrupted and, and, and so on and so forth, um, then yeah, you might see way more than say a quarter point rise. You might see you know a 25, 25 and 25 basis points. That's three quarters of a percent. Uh, it doesn't sound a lot, but that's uh, 700% on jump on where on rates are right now, which is yeah, really quite material. So a move lot. now, small one is enough just to send a bit of a shock out there, uh, a little bit of a warning shot to say, hey, we're watching this, slow it down. And that likely will dampen any of the flames on an inflationary side. If you leave it later, you've got to be more aggressive. If you're more aggressive, well, like anything, there are casualties when you have a more aggressive strategy. And, and, and one of them will be the property market for sure. A disrupted property market very sadly knocks on to everybody. Um, you know, if you think about the wealth effect through property, so many people have become millionaires through this property uh, explosion that we've seen over the last couple of years. And I appreciate there'll be li people listening to this that aren't in the property market and, uh, and, and it's unfair and it's hard to get in and it is. It always will be hard to get in. It is at every generation. It just happens to be really stretched right now. So, you know, some disruption in property may see a little bit more of a normalization, giving first time buyers a chance to get in at maybe better value without needing to borrow from mum and dad. Um, and that would actually be long term, probably a good thing uh, because you know, it will create long term sustainability in property at the moment. It's just off to the races and that's not sustainable. Equally, in terms of the hard hat, the wealth effect that comes from property, if your house has gone from being worth 800000 to $2 million, well, you definitely feel wealthier and you may do a drawdown against your property to go on a trip, buy a car, um, buy an investment property and so on. Get a jet ski. Yeah, I've just got rid of mine. Uh, There's a long story behind that. Um, yeah, I'll keep that long story for another time. <laughs> Don't use it. I think it's a seven years old and 30 hours. Best two days of buying a jet ski or best two days of a jet ski the day you buy it, the day you sell it, right? I had some good fun with it, to be honest. Bull market purchase and uh, I wanted it to take my dog to the cafe to get a coffee in the morning, if you can believe that. That's fair enough. Go to the house, beat you up. And anyway, that's a that's another story. Um, you know, going back to the wealth effect of property though, um, you know, it's not just the wealth effect of the homeowner. When you've got a construction boom, Part of the reason why so much government subsidy was focused towards property and a lot of people were a bit, yeah, that's not really fair to, to favour one sector over another. In economics, if I may put that hat back on again, there's something called the multiplier effect. Uh, for every dollar you spend has a knock-on effect elsewhere and in construction it's actually particularly heavy. They reckon it's somewhere between seven and eight times. So if there's a government subsidy in property that stimulates the property sector or the property construction sector, which means more tradies buying more cars, um, buying more tools, buying more raw materials, which means Bunnings hires more people or Kennards hire more people or, you know, um, all of the supply chain effectively gets lifted. The scaffolding company needs to put on extra staff and, and buy more equipment and needs to rent more warehouse space so that you know, the effects really expand out quite rapidly. And it's one of the best ways to stimulate the economy. This is why Evergrande 
in China is such a big deal. If your developers have slowed down, it's it's so massive an impact on your economy with with construction in particular. So a slower property market will weigh heavily on our economy. It will result in lower consumer confidence. Right now we've got great business confidence. More people in business are borrowing to expand, to gear up, but that slowdown in property would pull the rug out from all of that. And it will also have a very direct and immediate knock-on in the stock market too. We're at that crossroad, there's no doubt about it. We're at the end of 2021 now, and I think 2022 will be the the make or break year for us all, AB. Yeah, look, irrespective of forecasts, and do you know something, I've just painted a black and a white one, and it may well be gray, there's 10 shades of gray if you ever take up the Ansel Adams zone system of photography, <laughs> bit of trivia for you there. Um, but there are 10 shades of gray, and, and, and within there, it may be a blend of one or some of those sure. components. The reality is there's always going to be, particularly within the stock market, an investment strategy to be able to capitalize on whatever that outlook is. So if you're listening to this and you're going, I'm 100% in the white camp or you're 100% in the black camp, it's probably not going to be either of those. It Somewhere might be 90, 80, 70% of one of those scenarios. There's a strategy that you can find that will fit that. And it's a question, I guess, of A, being skilled to know, A, that there are strategies that are there, and B, to have the confidence to actually apply those strategies in what could be quite challenging times. So, you know, this isn't, you just buy shares, you're gonna be selective on the sectors or the types of shares that you buy. Strategy. Some, some are growth, some are cyclical, some are rate sensitive type stocks, some are defensive stocks. So, you know, to give an example of something that's defensive, utilities, for example, typically are quite a defensive place to be. If we get something that's an inflationary, um, environment, which is more towards that sort of darker scenario, um, having exposure to something, just to give you a really simple example, like toll roads, you know, Transurban is a good example of that, because if there's inflation, um, telecommunications, Telstra, I hate recommending Telstra, but those sorts of businesses can pass on that cost rise to the customer very easily. Your toll road costs more to use, your phone costs more to use, there's inflation, it's covered off. So they're the sorts of businesses that tend to be a little bit more inflation proof if that's what we have. If we end up in a you know, a bit more of a, a, an economic contraction, your cyclicals are gonna be stocks to start to avoid. You know, Your banking sector tends to struggle a little bit there until we get a base out of that cycle. So you can put different hats on to suit whatever that outlook might be. If you're even more sophisticated again, and we move into a phase where there's just more volatility. Well, there are ways that you can exploit that directly in the stock market too. We do that in the options market. We do that in the ETF space. So whichever the outcome there is, there is a way of trading and profiting from it. And I think one of the key things as we sort of get towards the back, unless you've got some really tricky ambush questions for me. No no segue, no tricky uh, questions today. As we get to the back of, of this particular podcast is, you know, successful trading and investing isn't about predicting what's going to happen. And that's probably one of the most challenging things about doing a podcast like this. A few years ago, I used to write a book every year called Outrageous Market uh, Predictions. And, you know, it was, I think it was one of the top downloaded eBooks in the Apple store for a couple of years, actually. It's an interesting one. Maybe we should resurrect that. Um, but it isn't about predicting what's gonna happen. Successful investing is not about predicting, and so many people think it is, and they fixate on how they get the crystal ball or the tea leaves to tell them what it is to do. Successful investing is swiftly responding to what's actually happening. And that's critically important to understand. So if we see a market start to fall, 
for example, whether that be property or whether it be in the stock market, don't sit there like a rabbit in the headlights watching it. You have to effectively take action quickly. It's about how you respond to that. If we see a market off to the races again, how are you going to respond? What's the best way of getting the lowest risk exposure to that particular uh, view that you have. So it's not about guessing, it's not about forecasting, which is kind of ironic when we're talking about what our market forecast is or our economic outlook for the year ahead. It's about saying, look, I, I could be totally wrong and still make a ton of money because my forecast may have been wrong, but if I respond swiftly and decisively with the right kind of action, I'll make a pile. Totally. The main message is get educated and know what you're doing and unashamedly plugging our plugging our business Australian investment education is a great way to do that. This is what we do is is equipping our clients to be able to not suck on the bottle and be able to think for themselves and find opportunities and to have the confidence to do that with risk management wrapped around it. That is what successful investing is to me. And I think 2022 will be a year again, just like 2021 was. And so was 2020. And so has every year previously been uh, where there's going to be some incredibly successful investors out there that have banked a lot of money, not because they've read the tea leaves and they've predicted, forecast, guessed the future, but because they've responded swiftly and decisively when it's mattered. That's what it's all about. AB, thanks very much for your insight. Let's hope uh, for a positive 2022, more towards that first scenario, less of the second scenario, but ultimately have some tools in your kit bag to be ready to go, right? Be a bit boring if it was that predictable. I reckon we're going to have a bit of work to do, but I think it's going to be a good year. That's all right. I'll have a job to come back to next year. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) Thanks, AB. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Mitch. There you have it, guys. There's our outlook. There's our forecast. There's our strategy. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.